Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, this week on politics, I'm talking to Peter Martin, who's the economics editor for The Age, based at Parliament House in Canberra. And I'm talking to Peter because he's got some very interesting views about bracket creep. And he's also bringing us up to date with what Chris Bowen told the National Press Club this week. On the markets, it's David Cottle, currency strategist at IG Markets in Singapore, and he's also an analyst with Daily FX. And we talked to him about the US dollar and oil price, US bond yields, and markets more generally. The big economic news this week is jobs growth, and we're talking to Callum Pickering, APAC economist at Indeed.com, and we're catching up with Steve Samatino about autonomous vehicles and how you might invest in them, if not in them exactly, but in real estate, and how autonomous vehicles will affect the price of real estate. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. I'm joined now by Peter Martin, the economics editor for The Age, based in Canberra, to talk about the week in politics. Peter, what did Bowen, Chris Bowen, the um, shadow treasurer, say in the press club this week? He trumped, uh, to use the wrong word, Alan, he uh, trumped uh, the coalition uh, for what will be the second of three times uh, on the budget. The first was in the budget reply speech when uh, they announced bigger cut tax cuts, 75% bigger um, for the first year um, with the uh, offset. Uh, the second was the, the uh, fiscal rules that are in the budget, that the uh, government is required to set down fiscal rules uh, required by the Charter of Budget Honesty. The Charter doesn't say what they should be, but uh, they set down something that they'll be judged by. And um, one of the fiscal rules is that all improvements in the revenue due to parameter variations due to uh, changes in the economy will be banked to improve the bottom line. And now, they, they reprinted that in the budget this year, didn't do it. You know, they, they got $35 billion in because of the changing economy and that they spent uh, between 14 and $15 billion of it. Labor has said it will do it. And, and the, the third thing that Labor will do is uh, spend more on various programs that can do this because of all of the, uh, uh, the uh, tax uh, loophole tightening uh, it's doing and, and not going ahead with the company tax rate. So, so does that mean, um, uh, is the uh, the effect of that that um, uh, any sort of increases in spending or tax cuts need to be funded through policy changes as opposed to parameter changes as the budget calls them? Yes, and I think that this is partly for public consumption but it's only wonky people like you and me who really get into that. I suppose the public headline is bigger surplus, but partly for internal party consumption. Um, the opposition leader's office has agreed to this and the, the Labor Party is very centrally controlled that way. That means that between now and the election, any shadow minister who has a policy program will bring it before Bowen and Bowen will say, look, We've committed to spend any increases in the bottom line due to the economy. You, or maybe one of your uh, opposite numbers uh, in another portfolio, is going to have to find the savings. This is, I think, in itself a sort of a fiscal discipline uh, measure within the Labor Party. So it has that benefit uh, as well. Now, that may well make it a very simple election. The election will be about the size of tax cuts, things like that. Um, 
without Labor being able to offer uh, lots of expensive policies. And that may be what uh, the leader wants. You know, if Shorten wants to be in office for a long time, that, uh, that may suit him extremely well. Sounds more like a coalition policy than a, than a Labor one. Oh, I think we've moved a long way beyond those things, Alan. I think the two are largely interchangeable. But, yeah, well, well, precisely, in fact, it is a coalition policy. We know that it's a coalition policy because in every budget since 2014, the coalition has set it down in its fiscal rules. It's just that in this budget, it broke it. The, the other fiscal rule it has is that surpluses should climb to 1% of GDP and its projections for the last two budgets didn't have that happening. They do now, but there are some pretty heroic assumptions. I only discovered one of them the other day, looking, re-looking through the budget, as I do. You, you know, the uh, spending increases, the coalition says they've been increasing spending in real terms 2% a year, um, which is more or less true. This year, uh, the spending increases 3.1%, and in each of the next three years of the forward estimates, 1.1, 1.1, 1.1 with no obvious measures to show how that uh, pain is going to be delivered. So um, the, the, um, for that and other reasons, their uh, commitment to get the surplus back to above 1% of GDP doesn't look too realistic, uh, I think. So in a way, yeah, in a way, they're, um, they're uh, uh, out-coalitioning the coalition, if you like. Yeah. Um, just on another matter or related, I, uh, I read... Was great interest your uh, column this week on bracket creep, uh, yeah. and suggesting that the tax scales should be indexed. Uh, what you didn't say was, of course, that Malcolm Fraser did that in 1976, and um, uh, only it lasted a year or two, I think. It yeah. lasted a year or two, and um, and and what 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 I was thinking as I read the thing, I think actually, um, in a way, bracket creep has underpinned uh, Australian politics ever since. I mean, because so much of of um, political management in this country has been about returning bracket creep in the form of tax cuts. That's um, right. And I don't think it's working anymore. I think it's like a magician who does a trick repeatedly after a while. And, you know, I think it's Costello that killed it. Costello did it for six years in a row, counting Labor. Maybe, you know, that Labor implemented his uh, tax cuts. Maybe it was eight years in a row. People got to expect tax cuts. In their heart of hearts, they probably realise that it's their own money, it's their own bracket creep, or some of it, uh, sometimes most of it, but never all of it, being given back to them. And uh, the trick doesn't work anymore. Now, the reason I, I think that uh, bracket creep should be um, abolished by, say, indexing the tax thresholds to the CPI, although you could index it to wages. The reason I would do that, and there are people on, you know, the, the, the small government people who say this is a great idea, and uh, it is a great idea for them, uh, because the government won't have an automatic uh, increasing revenue. Company tax is already uh, bracket creeped, uh, is, is already indexed in the sense that it's flat, uh, flat tax rate. The, the reason why you would deny the government automatically increasing revenue uh, would please small government people. I think it should please pro-tax people as well, because um, at the moment we live in this fool's paradise. We, we think, oh yeah, the, the government can do this for us. Oh, and we want a tax cut. Um, if 
the government could only do things for us, like the NDIS, like the, the greater spending on health that we're going to need by increasing a tax rate, we would have to either support that or not. We would have to either vote for a party that, that offers that combination or not. We would have to live with the consequences of our preferences. So at the moment, to use an economic term, um, uh, opportunity cost you know, uh, is not made explicit. The actual cost, every time the government wants to spend money, $50 million on another memorial for Captain Cook, a quarter of a billion dollars on chaplains for schools, um, it would have to go to us, or every time those aggregated to be big enough, it would have to go to us and ask for an increase of 1% in our tax. We would be a lot more disciplined, but I think we're also likely to say yes, where, where we can see that it's things we want. That's my argument anyway. What, what would be the effect of combining that tax indexation uh, with Bowen's promise to bank uh, all of the benefits of uh, economic growth on the budget bottom line? It'd starve the government and the government would have to explicit, well, firstly, the government would have to spend money much better, right? Um, because it would be living more dangerously. Uh, you know, there'd be real consequences if, uh, if uh, programs cost more uh, than uh, they were going to. Um, secondly, it would have to, for the programs that were worthwhile, it would have to go to us and say, look, uh, we can't get this from bracket creep we can't get this from uh, a surprise improvement in the price of iron ore. Um, we are going to ask you to pay an extra percent more. Now, we know from the NDIS that we've been happy to do that. So for some things, they would. I, I should point out, though, that this um, uh, budget uh, uh, fiscal rule of uh, banking uh, increases to revenue caused by the economy um, is only there until the budget gets to a sustainable surplus, more than 1% of GDP. So that's actually, uh, you know, even in the rules that are there now, that's not meant to be permanent. So, and this is this is why Labor is um, making noises, uh, well, it's making noises about cutting company tax down the track and it's making noises about further income tax down the track. Its argument, it's read the fiscal rules it seems to believe the coalition's fiscal rules. Its argument is that first we get the budget back to 1%. We do that by banking surprises, and then we have a look at what we want to do. So, so it's, it's almost as if they've, they've read what the coalition says, um, have committed themselves to it, and the coalition isn't that committed. joined now by David Cottle in Singapore, where he is the currency strategist for IG Markets and also analyst for Daily FX. Well, David, the US dollar has uh, appreciated 5% against the euro in the past month. Do you think that that was a bottom uh, back a month ago? And um, uh, where do you think it's heading? Well, look, um, I wasn't surprised to see the dollar come back this year. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty much on the record of saying I, I thought that markets had got it rather wrong, uh, particularly, as you say, uh, particularly as you say, against the euro. I think that earlier this year, investors were hearing central bankers say our economies are doing better, we might raise rates, which in the, in the case of the euro, eurozone, 
it's arguable. But I also think that a lot of central bankers were saying is we don't see any utility in cutting rates or expanding QE much further, which is a different thing from we're about to raise interest rates anytime soon. And I, I, I think that for as long as for as long as monetary policy differentials are the main driver of foreign exchange markets as they are and I think they'll continue to be then I think you've got it quite like the dollar and against not just the euro but against against, against more or less all other developed market currencies I think um, but I, I think even more, more broadly than that um, you know if, if things were to change and obviously there is a risk that they might there's a risk that some of the softening we've seen spreads to the US but even if uh, you know, developed market currencies become a least ugly contest. I still think you like the dollar. So, I mean, it, 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 for me, for me, I think the dollar has bottomed. I mean, I, I do hear. I mean, I've read, I've read some some stories recently which look a little bit strange to me about you know the the, the, the U.S. deficits should weigh more on the dollar. Well, I'm presuming that the people who've been buying the dollar in the last month are as aware of those deficits as you and I are, and it hasn't stopped them doing it. Uh, you know, I mean, they, I mean they, 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 there may be a switch in what drives foreign exchange. There may be a switch in attitude towards the dollar. But at the moment, I don't think so. Um, the other thing that's going on, speaking of interest rates, is uh, this week that the 10-year um, uh, bond yield in the US has gone back yes. above 3% and, and kept going, and it's kind of looking quite, uh, quite strong now, or at least uh, the, the price is looking very weak. So Indeed. What do you think? Yes. Uh, well, I think I think that uh, for the first time in a very, very long time, I'm not sure it's a post-crisis first, but certainly in a very long time, U.S. equity investors uh, have a treasury yield, which I think matches the S&P 500 yield. So that's an interesting alternative, possibly. But look, I think I think the new Fed chair, I think old Jerome Powell, he's, he's, he's sort of set his stall out and put his cards on the table to mix my cliches. But I mean, he, he's made it as clear as I think he possibly can that he plans to go on raising U.S. rates as long as it's plausible for him to do so, which I think means we definitely get one in June and we probably get at least one more this year. Now, how much more beyond that he goes, I don't know, because I think if we do see a sort of global suffering, it's probably not plausible to suspect that the U.S. is going to stand utterly isolated from this. But I, I, I think that for as long as Jerome Powell is sending us that message, I think the direction of travel for U.S. yields is pretty clear, and it's upward. I mean, it may not be rapid, it may not be completely linear, but I, I, as for as long as that's true, I think yields go up. And, and, I, and I think he's made it fairly clear that anyone who doesn't like it can send him a postcard, I don't care, the Fed. So, you know, it's, it's, it's what he's planning to do. So, And the other thing that's going on, of course, is the oil price rising, partly uh, due to um, uh, geopolitical concerns in the Middle East and um, yes. supply demand, big rise in the oil price. So um, uh, that's the other impact. That's the other thing that's going on in markets at the moment as well, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an oil market expert by any means. I mean, I, I look at the price, I look at the news like we all do, but I, I'm not a, an, oil market, an oil market expert. I kind of got around that by marrying somebody who is, but I'm, I'm, I hasten to say it wasn't the, the primary cause of attraction. Uh, but um, uh, my reading of this is that the, the famous supply glut that we all read about endlessly in the last year or two seems to have gone largely or at least to be heading towards being gone. I mean, this, this, again, this is not linear. There was some U.S. inventory data late last week showing a build again. And I think that with the, if, for as long as that is the case, then I think we can probably expect 
somewhat higher oil prices than we've become used to in the last couple of years. But by the same token, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but by, by the same token, you know, I mean, I, I read a, a story yesterday that I found uh, sort, of, sort of bizarre where it said that we could be heading into a softening economy with higher global economy with higher oil prices. Well, surely if there's going to be a softening global economy, then demand for oil is going to go down quite a lot, presumably taking the price with it. And, you know, I think there's, at the moment there seems to be a split between OPEC's take on likely demand which is quite high, and the IEA's take, which shows it leveling off. And obviously, one of these is going to be right. Uh, but I know I, I, my, my take is, is that the, we've, we may have seen the best growth for the global economy this year already. And if it softens, then although I think on an inventory drawdown basis, oil prices might still be higher than we've seen them, I, I, I'm not reading the sort of $100 oil stories with any great degree of uh, you know, acquiescence, shall we say. Well, last time we saw um, a softening economy and very high oil prices was the 1970s, and it was called stagflation. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, I, these days, I mean, and you know, I, I read, I, I read also, uh, and you know, I, I mean, I read also that fundamentally, this oil market is incredibly well supplied, and I don't see it being any less well supplied. Uh, particularly by our friends who produce all the shale in the U.S., uh, who if they if they've been happy at recent prices, they're going to love seventy dollars and eighty dollars, aren't they? So I mean, I, I I just think that I just think that fundamentally, this is a this is a well supplied market with a much lower inventory than it used to have. So that means higher prices, but not that much higher. So bottom line, what do you think all of these influences mean for the equity market? We've got uh, dollar rising, uh, U.S. interest rates rising, bond yields up above three percent, oil price rising. I think there's a bit more in developed market equities. I mean, I don't want to cop out too much, but I think it's probably. I think you've probably got to be a little bit more of a picker than you have been uh, in in the recent past. I mean, I, I'm also one of these people who, uh, you know, don't shoot me, but I get very, very nervous when I see the ASX above six thousand because I think it's going to be a short trip above here or a very, very short trip above here because those have been your options for about ten years, haven't they? Um, but. Um, you know, I, I think I think that there is more juice left in equities, and I think that particularly if we are seeing a lower rate environment around the world uh, than, than was expected, if not necessarily in the U.S., although I do suspect that U.S. rates won't go up as fast beyond this year as people think. Um, I think that there is more juice in equity markets, but I would be I would be wary of saying much more. Um, they, they 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 probably can go higher. I wouldn't be surprised to see them higher than they are now at the end of the third quarter. Wouldn't be so sure at the end of the year. joined now by Callum Pickering, who used to work with me in the Business Spectator as The Economist, and now he works for Indeed.com as The Economist for Asia Pacific. Callum, the jobs growth uh, came back a bit in April, but I gather you're, you're saying it's still pretty soft overall. Uh, hasn't really kind of bounced back enough to say that the labour market's tightening. Yeah, that's right. We had a bit of a rebound in April. Employment was up 22,600 people, but it comes after two months where employment actually fell. So if you look at the three months in isolation, employment only increased by 14,500 people, which is obviously a really weak quarter for employment growth, particularly coming after the strong results that we had last year where 400,000 jobs were created. So certainly from my perspective, it appears as though the labour market has taken a little bit of a turn for the worse, it wasn't unexpected. Um, we always expected there to be some slowdown, um, but it's certainly been a very weak quarter so far. Would you say that the, the strong jobs growth that obviously characterised last year is finished now? Uh, it certainly appears that way. Um, as I said, 14,500 in a quarter is a 
big step down from the 35,000 a month that were averaged throughout 2017. But the reality was growth of that nature last year wasn't sustainable. The Australian economy can't produce 400,000 jobs a year. So we always expected 2018 to be a weaker year. It's just a matter of how weak that might be. And we might be on the way to a year where only 100,000 jobs are created, for example. Yeah, but the problem is that, as we discovered yesterday from the wage price index data from the ABS, that that 400,000 new jobs last year has not turned into strong wages growth. It's still just 2.1%, 0.5% for the quarter. So what the hell is going on? Well, the problem is there's still a high degree of labour market slack across Australia. The unemployment rate's still at 5.6%. And despite the strong employment growth last year, the unemployment rate only dipped a, a small amount. Um, so we've still got quite a, a long way to go before the unemployment rate gets down below 5%. And that's at the point where many economists expect that wage growth will begin to pick up materially. Um, until we get to that point, we might see wage growth continue to fluctuate at around its current level. Yeah, but the participation rate was supposed to fall with the ageing of the population. In fact, it's rising. And, and you know, there's no sign, you would think, that it's going to, that it's going to turn around. Uh, with participation, no, it's certainly um, – that has been one of the, the big surprises in the last couple of years. It's been driven mainly by uh, more women participating in the workforce as well as older Australians remaining in the workforce um, longer. And potentially that high participation uh, rate is actually creating more slack in the labour market. The high participation could actually be contributing to the lower wage growth that we're seeing. Yeah, that's why, I was, that's why I mentioned it. I mean, that's it seems mm. to me is the reason that unemployment is 5.6% with a strong weight, a strong employment growth last year. Yeah, and one of the, the issues with this higher participation rate is if employment growth has slowed, if we continue to see um, what's happened in the last three months continue over the course of 2018, then the unemployment rate is going to increase. It'll go from 56 to 57 maybe 5.8%, which means that we're going to see greater downward pressure placed on rate wages uh, in the near term. Yeah, so you're going to get old and grey before the Reserve Bank puts up interest rates. It certainly appears that way. Um, I've pushed back my expectations of a rate hike until the very least 2020, and I certainly wouldn't be surprised if I have to push it uh, back again um, in the next couple of years. But it certainly doesn't appear like the Reserve Bank's going to hike any time soon. It just can't be justified given the state of the labour market at the moment. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, we've got we've been going for, what, 18, 19 months now with interest rates at the lowest level in history. And um, uh, we're talking about another, what, two years? Unbelievable. Well, that's right. Um, and economists have been talking about the potential for rate hikes going all the way back to 2013, 2014, uh, was when sort of expectations came that they thought rate hikes were just around the corner. And of course, uh, since then, rates are obviously uh, lower than they were back then. Um, and it certainly doesn't appear like there's going to be any change anytime soon. The labour market situation at the moment, particularly with wages, is just rather unprecedented in recent Australian history. And it certainly doesn't appear as though it's going to turn around quickly anytime soon. Looking at the labour market, though, I mean, that's kind of where you've got to look, isn't it? I mean, um, uh, to some extent, obviously, there's other influences on inflation, but, you know, fundamentally, um, you've got to look at the labour market. And and as you say, not only is there a fair bit of slack in the labour market still, it's actually likely to increase from here. 
That's right. Um, and if labour if labour market slack remains high, wages are going to remain low. And wages really are the key for the Australian economy right now. It's the key for inflation, monetary policy, um, house prices, household spending, you name it. Uh, wages is what's um, keeping the Australian economy back at the moment. I'm joined now by Steve Samartino, author and futurist, to talk about autonomous transport and how to invest in not even it so much as the things that will benefit from it. And by the way, his latest book is The Lessons School Forgot, How to Hack Your Way Through the Technology Revolution. Worth a read. Steve, um, let's talk about autonomous transport. Firstly, um, uh, how close do you think it is? It's in, uh, there seems to be continuing debates about uh, you know what happens when people get run over and so on, but um, it does seem to be happening, doesn't it? Yeah, it's closer than we think. And what we have is five levels of autonomy. Uh, level three autonomy is already well in the market and we've done you know, tens of millions of miles with very few incidents. I think what will happen is we'll see a split approach to autonomous transport. I don't think, think it'll be a one-size-fits-all where the cars are let loose on the roads, even though testing is happening in most cities around the world. I think what we'll see is places with fewer pedestrians like highways and other areas become autonomous driving segments where we do it piece by piece as we prepare the infrastructure and also the legal concerns to make it happen. Right. And so uh, take us through the levels. What are they? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. So the very first level of autonomous transport is really just ABS braking and traction control. Uh, the second level is an autonomous car that has uh automatic braking and things like that on your behalf where it enhances uh, driver errors and things that, that you don't react to quick enough. And then at level three, that's when we start to get autonomy where you can take your hands off the steering wheel at certain places but still be in control. And level five is full autonomy where the car can drive by itself. So what we're seeing now in most of the testing is what we call level three autonomy where a driver still needs to be behind the wheel uh, in case of an emergency. And then between there and level five, level five is full autonomy where you second your car to come and pick you up after you've had a couple of glasses of wine on a Friday night and it takes you home. And you're sitting, you're, you're sitting in the back seat playing words with friends on your phone. <laughs> That's right. So um, what are the broader impacts of this trend um, in, the, in the appearance of autonomous transport, in particular on real estate? What do you think is likely to happen? For me, it's particularly telling if we look at history. It's easy to forget that transport has always defined where we live and where we work. I mean, I even think of the history of human evolution in four words, uh, spear, seed, spanner, and now silicon. And if we think about you know, when we were hunters and gatherers, we were mobile and we lived where the work was. Uh, when we had the seeds, we started to settle down in civilization and the agricultural revolution. And the Industrial Revolution was all about the spanner. And at the Industrial Revolution, Henry Ford literally invented suburbs. I mean, we used to live just in the cities before the car came along and we could all have our own horseless carriage. And things like shopping centres and highways to major cities and, and living in suburbs, that were literally invented by the ability of transport. And for me, the biggest opportunity that I think few people are aware of is how autonomous transport will change where we live. Housing affordability, a major issue in many of the cities around Australia, particularly Melbourne and Sydney. And I truly believe that autonomous transport will invent exurbs 
So the exurbs are coined as places of great beauty and infrastructure that we need, you know, maybe two hours or so away from a major city. Examples might be, you know, the Central Coast in New South Wales or around the Geelong region in Victoria, where you still have all of the infrastructure that you need, but you might work for a major corporation that lives in the city, but really only come into the city uh, a couple of times or to the office a couple of times a week. And autonomous transport will make that journey so much easier. Uh, autonomous transport with cars will be able to live in exurbs where places are more beautiful and housing is far more affordable. So I think we're going to see inordinate growth in satellite centres outside of major cities, and that will be facilitated by autonomous transport and also facilitated by corporations saying, does our office need to be this big or can we have people come in a couple of days a week for the social facilitation and have people work from home or work from anywhere? And you know, with the reality of drones, we're seeing E-Hung come out of China with drones that fly humans for you know, a little over $100,000. It's only a matter of time before you know, they're the same price as a car. And, and, and it's highly probable that we will you know, fly in drones you know, a couple of hours away into the city and land on the roofs. I mean, we had NASA just last week announce they're doing a deal with Uber for drone taxis in cities. So this is the reality. I mean, this is Jetson stuff. I don't fully understand why autonomous transport, uh, autonomous cars, um, facilitate satellite cities or, you know, the sort of the, the, the um, development, of, um, development of satellite yeah. cities. Okay, so the reason is this, is that autonomous transport, A, they can drive a lot faster and a lot more fluidly. And so the, the time that it takes to get 100 or 200 kilometres away from a major city, when the cars all speak to each other and organise the traffic with each other by algorithmically speaking to each other, we can get all sorts of interesting ways of reducing the traffic. And when we're travelling to the city, uh, you know, it'll be far more comfortable and quicker uh, we won't be driving, we'll be able to be working, they'll become rolling offices. And and the the cost of doing it will be a lot lower. So it'll be a function of two things. It'll be a function of offices shrinking because it's a great way to reduce overhead, of people wanting to live somewhere where housing is affordable and the autonomous vehicles making the journey of going into the city outside of traditional nine-to-five working hours a lot easier uh, with autonomous transport. So it, it will facilitate quicker, more seamless, and certainly with the drones, that, that is a big one because with drones there'll be no traffic whatsoever simply because we have that third dimension where you know five or ten layers of drones can all fly into the city you know, at 200 kilometres an hour. So autonomous transport in the broader sense, both drones and cars, will change the speed of people moving and offices will shrink because we know that people are more mobile because of this and they can come in and out as and when they need. So I, I really truly believe that there's a, there's a big shift that's going to happen in real estate and where we live. And it, it couldn't come at a better time when house prices are the way they are, very, very close clustered to the cities. So, uh, so, so are you saying that one way to invest in autonomous transport is to buy real estate in um, Ballarat or Bendigo or uh, that, Orange absolutely. or something? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and you know, not being an investment advisor, being a futurist, but, but – what usually happens with investing, and I think from a futurist perspective, is we need to look at the second and third order effects, or in traditional economic speak, the externalities, because to invest in the technology itself, and I'm very often asked, what, what technology should I invest in, Steve? And I always say, invest in the beneficiary of the technology, not the technology itself. It almost comes back to that idea of 
a, a random walk down Wall Street. As soon as an industry is hot, its price earnings ratios go through the roof, and and it becomes a you know a, a poor investment from a yield perspective. Even though there might be some upside in capital growth, it becomes difficult to outperform the market. But if we remove ourselves from the technology and move into the beneficial cycle of the technology one or two layers out, then I think that that's a better proposition uh, to make an investment. And, and also it's, it's less obvious. And so, you know, the listeners would know that by looking at things that the market's not looking at, you can get above average returns by looking at the impact of the technology rather than the technology itself. Happy birthday, Henry St. Clair Fredericks. Who's that, you might ask? Well, it's Taj Mahal, and he turned 76 yesterday. To celebrate, here's his hit song, Queen Bee. Sweeter than a honeybee, yeah, baby, been sweet on me. Sweeter than a honeybee, yeah, my queen bee. Oh, she love me to my soul. Ooh, love me to my soul. Oh, she rock me to my soul. That's it for Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week.